Hi, this is Donna Otto, and we are Modern Homemakers, and we are ending these years of podcasting, and I started the show and couldn't remember what I started with after 17, 16 years of podcasting. I have this wonderful affection for what I have done and love ending this time of teaching and ministry and work with young women in a way that I will continue in a different way uh, as I leave the podcasting world. They call me a pioneer here in the podcast world. That's one, because I'm old, and two, because I've been doing it for so long. And when we started podcasting, it was two young women who had heard about podcasting and were working in the ministry, and they came to me one morning in a meeting at the office and said, we think you should podcast. And I said, okay, what is podcasting? And that is how we began, and this is how we are ending. And today I want to read to you um, The Best Christmas about a woman who's poor who gives much. You couldn't really call Mrs. Dooley a spiritual type, but she takes such pleasure in living, has such a fine earthy acceptance of life as it is, that it cheers me to think of her. The day I met her, she was being evicted from a room where she lived with three babies, triplets, that she had given birth to one month earlier. We're going to be set out on the street and hit a rainin', she told me. I suggested that a story about her plight and pictures of the triplets in our newspaper might help her to find her housing. She was willing. I sure hope so, she said. The carnation milk in Tidy Didy is giving the trips milk and diapers, and with all them cans of milk and all them diapers are piling up, we need to situate in a hurry. The day the pictures and the story appeared in the paper, offers of housing did indeed come pouring in, and I got a staff car and went by to pick up Mrs. Dooley and the triplets to inspect what was offered. By the time I got there, Mrs. Dooley had been to the Methodist and Baptist orphanages, got out her other six children that she had stashed away, so we had nine children instead of three to find housing for. One of the first places we went was the Marietta Highway to Happy Hooligan's barbecue stand. Happy, the most doleful-looking character I've ever seen, had a room in the back of his establishment, which he said Mrs. Dooley could use. And then his eyes, resting on the six big children, he suggested that they could serve as car hops to work out the rent. I just purely love children, he said. I ain't never had any none my own my wife being paralyzed from the waist down for 20 years. It was then I noticed that Mrs. Dooley was a rather handsome woman, except for one slight idiosyncrasy. In moments of emotional stress or excitement, her eyes would cross. They crossed at Happy's suggestion, and with a rush of sympathy, she cried, Good man, I know just what you're against, and you and me, we can help one another. 
I hated to be a killjoy, but I could see ten people living in one room, and even if the three of them were babies and six of them were car hops. So I dragged Mrs. Dooley and her brood away and eventually got them ensconced in a neat, warm apartment in a federal housing project. I was proud of that place. It had good plumbing, sunny clothesline, an enclosed playground for the children. But Mrs. Dooley hated it, and after a month she left and took her nine children and moved back to the slums to two rooms. You know how it is with them federal, she told me. They rule and regulate your life. While Mrs. Dooley and I traveled around looking at apartments, we became pretty good friends. She told me a story about her life and her marriage to the late Hampton P. Dooley. He pushed an ice cream honky cart for a living, and instead of ringing a little bell to alert the customers to his approach, he would honk like a southbound goose. They called him Gander Dooley. He was a sweet thing, Mrs. Dooley said, polite and nice as ever, but he had one little failing. Every time she was expecting a baby, he would disappear. She didn't hold it against him. You seen delicate people, ain't you, she asked. It was a delicacy, unfortunate, in the father of nine children, and she told me she thought so too. She made up her mind once to break him of it. It was after Buddy was born, and he was lying down yonder on Pullman Street. Mr. Dooley, he came a wavering back, a-looking sleepy-like, and I said, Mr. Dooley, you got the leave and habit. You just as well leave now as later. Mr. Dooley said, Ah, Bertie Lou, you know you don't want me to go. The boogers will get you. But Mrs. Dooley was firm. She said, boogers or no boogers, you go on down the road, sir. So Mr. Dooley left, as she related. I went into the house to get up a washing clothes I was doing for a neighbor. I opened the closet door, and there was quelled up on them clothes the biggest snake you've ever seen. I yelled to the young'uns to run to get the hoe, and they couldn't find the hoe, so they got Mr. Dooley instead. After that, the triplets were (laughs) conceived and Mr. Dooley died. Mrs. Dooley seemed to think it was appropriate for him to disappear permanently before so phenomenal a birth as the triplets. I often wonder what he would have thought, she mused, him being a man in his 70s like he was. When Mrs. Dooley moved from the housing project back to the slum, she took in a gentleman lodger. By that time, we were fast friends, and all the people who had helped Mrs. Dooley in one way or another started urging me to speak to her about the impropriety of having a man in the house. Like the late Mr. Dooley, I felt a certain delicacy, but one day I summoned my courage and mentioned it to Mrs. Dooley. You know the teachers you give the triplet the coats? Yeah, every one of them different, cried Mrs. Dooley. For triplets, mind you and every one of them coats are different. I apologized for that and lumbered on. The teachers didn't think it was quite suitable for her to have a gentleman lodger. That's the way it goes, says Mrs. Dooley. Folks hep you, and they want to run your business. The public health nurses, I persisted, didn't think it was quite sanitary of all of them being together. Them old maids, Mrs. Dooley said scornfully. Don't they know love is the healthiest thing they can get? After that, I felt a coolness between Mrs. Dooley and me. She seemed to put me in a class with school teachers and public health nurses, them welfares, them juveniles, and others of the stripe we just weren't as close as they had once been. I missed her, too, because she was a real philosopher, and in times past I had enjoyed calls from her. 
you know, she would say in some weighty discussion of life and its vicissitudes, if it ain't the physical, if it's the mental. If it ain't the mental, it's the financial. All the time. Whether pressure of public opinion and anything to do with it, I don't know. But Mrs. Dooley later married the lodger and right away called up to give me the news. When I congratulated her, she said, Well, thank you. Edie is nice. I like him. And the children, they like him too. But dropping her voice confidentially, she said, It ain't a workin'. He had quit his job in the cotton mill to take them all on a honeymoon to Chattanooga. When they returned, them welfarers, seeing a legal man in the house, had cut off the aid to dependent children's program. And we'd gone to be set out on the street, hit a raining again. I started to sympathize her, but she was laughing, and I knew the old, hearty, ebullient spirit was not cast out. She said all she wanted me to do was help them get jobs. You take charity, she said. It ain't really liable anyhow. The marriage I forget to say was short-lived. The bridegroom took a powder, and Mrs. Dooley grieved for a time. The privations of the second widowhood upset her so that she called one day and urged me to write a story exposing Grady Hospital. People down there, she said, they were putting Spanish fly in her snuff. You being a lady your own self, she pointed out, you know that ain't one of us that can withstand that stuff. From time to time, she would need help in making a payment on the TV just before the sheriff came to repossess it. She was finally reconciled to living in a housing project, and it was there a few years ago that she really proved her mettle. Christmas came, and for once in all the years, she had put up with them welfares, them juveniles, them church ladies, and assorted do-gooders. Mrs. Dooley struck it rich. Their systems of checks and balances broke down. Never before in her long association with them had she witnessed what they abhorred above all, a duplication of services. Lord God, it's kingdom come, she told me ecstatically. Poor baskets are pouring in here a mile a minute. We got three turkeys and two hams and four backpacks and you could shake a stick. There's cakes and oranges and apples and pecans and Tootsie Rolls that won't wait. I want you to come and see it while we're plum wallering in plenty. I had a fleeting feeling that I should call somebody, but I didn't get around to it. And I'm glad, because the day after Christmas, Mrs. Dooley gave me a report on the disposition of her goodies. She and the children had repacked the back and gone abroad into the housing projects and their old neighbors and given to everyone who had need. The turkeys, the hams, the fruits, and the candies went first, and after that they gave the fat back and the collard greens and the canned goods. Never had such a good time in my life, she said happily, and you should have seen how the children enjoy it. What did you keep for them, I asked. Two cans of chicken soup, she said. I started to remonstrate her with but interrupted me to say something which will always stay in my mind as a poignant statement of Christmas. Don't you say a word, good woman, she said with dignity. My children have been receiving and receiving all their lives. This is the best Christmas they ever had. Nobody ought to be so poor that they can't give at Christmas time. I know Mrs. Dewey seems a little crass, doesn't she? 
But I remember that reading to our now 52-year-old daughter when she was about nine, and she fully understood the theme of that reading and made different decisions for her Christmas that year. So it's a very important piece to me as we uh, finish these readings of Christmas. And I want to add to that a small poem by my dear, beloved friend and hero, Eugene Peterson, from Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come out of Jacob. No star is visible except at night until the sun goes down. No accurate north. Day's brightness hides what darkness shows to sight. The hour I go to sleep, the bear strides forth. I open my eyes to the cursed but requisite dark, the black sink that drains my cistern dry, and see, not nigh, not now, the heavenly mark exploding in the quasar message sky. Out of the dark, behind my back, a sun launched light years ago completes its run. The undeciphered skies of myth and story now narrate the cadence ruins of glory. Lost pilots wait for night to plot their flight. Just so do pilgrims praise the midnight. I pray that you praise the midnight, the dark, and the light. I pray that you will see in Mrs. Dooley's darkness, she anchored, or hankered, I should say, for the light. And when given an opportunity, she took the light and spread it abroad. And I pray that you will do the same. Not just Christmas of 2023, but the days ahead, the days of your life in 23 and 24, and for however long the Lord tarries. Remember, the common begin and the common finish. Go out and make it a very uncommon day of giving yourself and what you have away.